Amen. Good to praise the Lord with you this morning. How's everybody? Good. I have some challenging questions for you this morning, beginning with this one. How does a man or woman know what is morally right and what is morally wrong? Now, I'm asking that question from the perspective of a natural person, from an atheist or agnostic, not as a Christian. How does such a man or woman know what is right and what is wrong? Do I get to decide myself? Is it up to me? Or am I to look at the culture and be influenced by it, look at society standards and whatever they're saying about it? That then guides what I think is right or wrong. In either of those cases, whether I alone decide or culture influences me, morality would seem to be arbitrary and subjective. It would seem to be constantly in flux and not fixed in any meaningful or objective way. And therefore, the question that remains for the agnostic who's out there is is this. What is the ground or what is the anchor for my moral conclusions? Now, historically, there have always been people who have asked tough questions about the existence of God. They've asked questions like, well, how do you know God exists? Can you prove it? Without your Bible, close your Bible, can you prove to me that God exists with nothing more than logic and rationality? And Christian thinkers have responded well, provided a number of strong philosophical arguments for why God does exist, why he is indeed real, and why believing in him is indeed rational. And one of those arguments is known as the moral argument. In fact, I'm going I'm to put it on the screen for you right now. This is how the moral argument for the existence of God goes. Premise number one is this. If God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Premise number two, but objective moral values and duties do exist, and therefore the conclusion God exists. Now, there's several variations on the moral argument, but this is my favorite way of putting it. So think about this for a second. Torturing a child, murdering your neighbor, raping a woman, these are things that are objectively immoral in a way that goes beyond just personal opinion or feelings. Intuitively, human beings know that those types of things are just plain wrong. But why? Why do we intuitively know that those things are wrong? In an evolutionary scheme that says that you and I are nothing more than highly evolved species of animal, and where survival of the fittest really is the ultimate driving force in our lives, why would anyone come to the conclusion that those things I mentioned are morally wrong? As far as we can tell, a male lion doesn't second-guess himself when he goes and kills a rival and then kills his rival's cubs and then takes control over all the female lionesses in the pride. You don't see conquering lions walking around feeling guilty. Gee, I guess I could have been more compassionate with that other lion. Seems silly, doesn't it? So why do human beings, if we're just an animal species, act morally according to conscience? And the obvious conclusion is there's something different about us than animals. And so as the argument goes, as you see it on the screen, without a sovereign divine being who sets forth a ground for what is moral and immoral, it is impossible to discover objective right and wrong. Without a divine lawgiver, all that is left is emotion and opinions. 
But there are objective moral values and duties that are common to all human societies across the spectrum of human history. And therefore, it's rational and logical to say that those moral values came from somewhere, or more specifically, came from someone. Now, the objection that's raised by the agnostic is this. I don't have to believe in your Bible or your God in order to be a moral person, in order to do good things. And guess what? He's right. In fact, there's no sense arguing that. Non-religious people are often fine neighbors and good friends. They often do good things. In fact, sometimes they do better things than people who profess the name of Christ, don't they? To our shame. But by raising that objection, the agnostic only proves the point. They claim to be making good moral choices, but how can they claim anything to be good apart from an objective standard for goodness? So the Christian argument isn't that someone has to believe in the God of the Bible to be moral. The argument is that in order to ground objective morality, you must have a divine transcendent source for a moral code. See, if there's something such as evil, then there has to be something that is good. And if you assume that there is such a thing as good, then you must assume that there is some absolute and unchanging moral law that differentiates between evil and good, says that's evil and that's good. And if you assume that there is such a thing as an absolute and unchanging moral law, you have to posit that there is an absolute unchanging lawgiver. Now, I know that I I just wore some of you guys out. Your brains are ready to explode. Too many pancakes, and now I bring this to you, right? But these are important arguments that we need to be able to make to understand how that we we can talk to people who are really looking for rational reasons to believe in God. Interestingly, there have been atheists over the years who have honestly agreed with the first premise of that argument that you see on the screen. In other words, they would say, yeah, God does not exist, and therefore there is no good or evil. There is no right or wrong. There are actually people out there that would say that. Nietzsche, for example, the German philosopher once said, you have your way, I have my way. As for the right way, it does not exist. Richard Dawkins famously wrote this, life has no higher purpose than to perpetuate the survival of DNA. There is no design, there is no evil, there is no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now, as crazy as that sounds, at least Dawkins is being consistent with evolutionary thought. At least he's being honest according to his principles. If there is no moral lawgiver, then there can be no moral law. And if there's no moral law, then there is no good or evil. And here's the shocking outcome of this, and this is why this is important. The shocking outcome is this. Torture, murder, rape cannot be considered wrong in an evolutionary scheme. The most you can say as an evolutionist is, I don't like those things. Think about that. That is a scary proposition. Now, the reality is, is the average agnostic or atheist that you talk to will will probably not agree to that, right? They will probably not stand on that position. The average agnostic that you run into will acknowledge certain moral absolutes, even if they disagree on some things here and there. They will agree that there are certain absolutes. They will acknowledge that greed is bad and generosity is good. They will generally agree that arrogance is bad and humility is good. That hatred is bad and kindness is good. They will certainly acknowledge if somebody steals their stuff that there is suddenly something good and evil. Or if somebody impugns their character, suddenly they very clearly want to believe that there's good and evil and that there sure is evil. 
So there are very few consistent agnostics and atheists out there. Here's the point of all this. What we know from Scripture is certainly true and is evident before us every day in the people that we run into. Moral absolutes have been woven into us by the Creator. Let me say that again. Moral absolutes have been woven into us by our Creator. A certain code has been written on our hearts. And God has granted each of us a conscience that functions as the arbiter of the choices we make. Sometimes our conscience says, yes, that was good, defends us. And sometimes our conscience accuses us and says, no, that's a bad choice. That's immoral. That's the work of the Lord. This is a core principle to understand as we approach our passage for this morning. If you have your Bibles, grab it and go to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, 11 to 16 today. But we're going to go back up actually to verse 5 because it's been, get it, at least four weeks since we've been in Romans. So we have a little bit of review to do. Romans chapter 2. Are we awake out there? Did I lull you to sleep with my long introduction? Okay, good. Those are important principles, and we're going to see it in the text today. Romans 2, back up to verse 5. We covered this four weeks ago before we left for Israel. Here's what Paul says. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Judgment is a big theme in this section. Who will render to each person according to what? His deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality... What do they get? Eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, what do they get? Wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, stop there for a second because you're about to hear Paul use a particular word 11 times in the next six verses. It's the word namas in the Greek. It's the word law. And in fact, we're going to hear Paul talk about the law a lot. In fact, 52 times in the book of Romans, he's going to talk about the law. So let's define this carefully. When Paul speaks of the law in Romans, he is talking about those commandments that were handed down from God to his people Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai, sometimes referred to as the Mosaic Law. In Hebrew, of course, they would refer to it as the Torah. And the Torah was a moral code and a set of instructions given to Israel to regulate all of their life and their worship, to show them how to live in a way that would set them apart and make them different from the pagan nations that they lived around. This was the point of the law, at least for Israel, when it was given. Let's continue. Verse 11. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, let's remember, in the context of the New Testament, the world was divided generally into two categories, right? There were Jews and everybody else. We talk about them as Jews and what? And Gentiles, right? So let's identify here in verse 12 the two groups that Paul just described. Those who have sinned without the law would be whom? Gentiles, without the law. And what is their fate? To perish without the law. And those who have sinned under the law would be who? The Jews. And what is their fate? 
they will be judged by the law that they live under. Make sense? So we have Jews and Gentiles here in verse 12. Let's keep going, verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these Gentiles, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Now, it's a little bit awkward in the structure there. That's one long sentence in the Greek, and it's a little bit awkward. But we're going to break our way through this. Now, this is actually not a difficult passage to organize. Just a quick outline for where we're headed today. We're going to talk about two very basic truths that are contained here. Number one, there is a day of judgment coming. And it's coming to all men and women. Secondly, God will judge all men, both Jew and Gentile, impartially, without partiality. And then we'll wrap up by talking about some important application for us as New Testament believers. So let's start with sort of this obvious point, this basic principle, judgment is certainly coming. Did you know that? If you didn't know that, you need to hear that right out of the gate. Judgment is certain and it's coming. One of the important underlying principles that Paul is establishing here, and he will continue to press this issue throughout the book of Romans, is this, that all men are on an equal footing before God. All men and women are on an equal footing before God. Now, that's not true in terms of privilege. That is not always true in terms of privilege, but it is true related to accountability and judgment. Everyone will face the judgment of God. Am I clear on that? Every one of us in this room this morning is headed towards a judgment. Let that sink in. Because sometimes in the busyness of our life, we forget that that's coming, right? Every one of us will face the judgment seat of God. It will give an account for our lives, for our thoughts, our actions, our motivations, everything. And God will not judge as human beings do, based solely on what is publicly known. Look at verse 16. This is, should be a fairly scary statement here. God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So not, not just in, hey, we get together and, and, and the things that we all publicly know and understand, those things are judged. No, the secret things that we don't know, that only God knows and only you know, will be judged. Because God judges to the core of you and I. He judges to the heart. Every thought, every attitude, every motivation, plus every action, the things that we we do publicly, all of those things will come under the scrutiny of God Almighty. Every aspect of our being will be subject to inspection on the day of judgment. That should be a sobering thought, folks. Again, sometimes we forget in the busyness of our life that that day is coming. And if you're one of those people that has made a practice of of hiding your sin or camouflaging your sin or sinning in such a way as, as if you can justify it before men or make it look okay before others, know that those things will be exposed on the day of judgment. In fact, don't forget what Jesus once said. There is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light And what you've whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. God judges to the core of man, to the very heart. 
to the thoughts and the attitudes and the motivations. Now, with that established, and I don't think that's a shock to any of us here, we, we understand judgment's coming. We understand that God knows everything. We get that. Let's now talk about the nuances that Paul speaks of in this passage. He begins by telling us this very important fact, that God is impartial in his judgments and the way he judges. He shows no partiality. He is no respecter of persons, is how the old King James translates this. What does that mean exactly? Well, it's the very opposite of the way we judge in America today. How do we judge? Always by externals. We always judge based on externals. In fact, we're obsessed with these things. We are obsessed with celebrity, aren't we? Famous people. We seek the favor of people who are wealthy and powerful. We hold up beauty and fitness as the ultimate values. Americans judge everything based on what we see on the outside. And by the way, that was true of Roman culture as well. So they would have understood well what Paul was saying here. In Roman society, everything was about status and about the accumulation of power. So there are many parallels between American society and Roman society. But that's not how God does it. God is very different from us. He's not moved. He's not affected by these kinds of irrelevant external things, status and beauty and power and money. What he does take into consideration, according to verse 12, is the circumstances under which we sin. And when he examines our situation, our our case file, if you want to think about it, that every one of us has a case file in heaven, he will judge without any prejudice or bias. And therefore, his verdict will be utterly fair and just. There will be no complaints, no appeals, no chance to talk back. He will judge fairly and impartially. Now, at this point, an objection could be raised. And I think as you look at the text, Paul anticipates this objection from his audience in Rome. And it's this. Don't the Jews have an advantage, though? It may seem to those in the Roman church, especially to the Gentile believers who are receiving this letter, that God can't possibly be impartial because he's given too many advantages to the Jews. And he's left us out. After all, the Jews have the covenants, right? of Abraham and and David and, and Moses, and they have the law that was given to them through Moses. They have the patriarchs and the prophets. They have so many advantages. And it's true, right? They do seem to have advantages, certainly in terms of revelation and exposure to God and his word. And so surely God is partial towards his people in every way, especially when it comes to judgment. Well, guess what? That's how the Jews thought. That's how the Jews think today, that they do have an advantage. Even when it comes to judgment, they tend to think because of their bloodline that they're going to be okay. But God puts that falsehood to rest here. He blows that falsehood out of the water. Having the law and hearing the law will not help anybody at the judgment seat. Let me say that again. Having the law and hearing the law will not help anybody on the day of judgment. So remember this principle, privileges matter for nothing if they're not acted upon. And this is what Paul's trying to say. You've got advantages. You have privileges. If you don't act on them, they are meaningless. Does that make sense? Now, as an aside, we should all be aware that unsaved people love to raise objections like this. And you've probably heard them. Things like, maybe you've been, uh, you've been talking to somebody and they go, well, what about the fact that you have As an American, you have all this access to Bibles, but people in other parts of the world don't. That seems really unfair. They love to raise these types 
of objections, oftentimes because they're trying to deflect from their own sin, trying to deflect from the fact that they refuse to submit to God. So they'll ask you one of those crazy questions. Well, what about this? Or what about that? Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Know where they're going with this. In fact, I remember a story. uh, This was years ago. I was at a coffee house in Castaic, and there was this guy who I would see him there pretty regularly. I didn't really know him, but we would always wave, say hi. I, I figured I, he was a realtor or something. Um, he th- kind of thought he knew what I did. But then one day, we were the only two guys in the whole coffee house, and it was <laughs> that awkward moment. And he walked up and he said, so what do you do for a living? And I'm like, yes. Because this is, I mean, talk about a natural entree to talk about the gospel, right? When somebody asks me what I do for a living, that's my favorite question. So I had a chance to begin to talk about uh, about the gospel and about the Bible and about, about my story, and, and, and everything was going well. But I, as I got closer to talking about things like judgment, I could tell he was getting a bit uncomfortable. And that's when he did it. He, he pivoted with one of those questions. And it's the classic technique. Well, what about the guy who lives in the rainforest in South America who, who's never seen a Bible? How does God condemn him? And I said to him, John, that guy in the jungle, don't be fooled. He's seen God. Maybe more, you, more than you and I. He's seen God in creation, in nature. He's without excuse. Not only that, but God has written his law on that man's heart. He knows what's right and what's wrong. He has a conscience that tells him when he's violated it. Don't you think there's at least one moment that that guy in the jungle probably violated his own conscience? Even once? And if so, is he not guilty? And he thought for a second... And he said, well, maybe he didn't. And I said, well, I disagree with you because I think having a guilty conscience is something that's probably universal to every person that's ever walked the earth. But this is where I pivoted. And I said, but let's stop talking hypothetically. Let's talk about a real person. How about you? Yeah. Yeah, I'll never forget the color sort of drained out of his face. But that's a good, that's a good way to handle things. Don't get lost in hypothetical rabbit trails Talk about the person. I said, have you ever gone against your own conscience? Have you ever deliberately done what you knew in your heart was morally wrong? He changed the subject pretty quickly. And I remember he sort of went back to his work. And before he left, he came to say goodbye. So I, I took the opportunity to press the issue. And I said, John, remember that none of us measures up to God's standards. But let me tell you something else. Even if you don't want to acknowledge God's standards, none of us measures up even to our own ideals. Did you know that? None of us measures up to the standard that we even set, that our conscience tells us to set. I said, that includes me, by the way. And that's why we need a Savior. We should answer these types of objections in the way that Paul does here in Romans 2. It is true. We can acknowledge this. It's true that some people have been given more advantages than others when it comes to revelation and exposure to God. We in America, I think I I, I counted that we have like 12 Bibles in our home. You know, maybe you have five or six Bibles in your home. There are people in Afghanistan or Iran or North Korea who have none, who've never seen a Bible. We have advantages, don't we? Those of us who grew up with godly parents in a Bible-teaching church, have an advantage over people who grew up in non-Christian homes. And here's the thing. By God's sovereign design, the playing field has never been level. And it never will be, by the way. 
That's God's sovereign design. But Paul makes it clear, here's the key, in this passage, that the judgment of God will not favor those who have more access to truth. That may surprise you. Let me say it again. The judgment of God will not favor those who have more access to truth in their life. Not hearing the law of Moses will not condemn anyone, Paul says. Hearing it will not save anyone either on the day of judgment. At the judgment seat, the question will not be, well, how much of God's law did you hear about? Or how much of God's law did you know? How much of God's law did you memorize? That will not be the standard. The standard will be, what did you do with it? How did you respond to it? And how did you live? We will all be judged by what we have, not by what we don't have. That's Paul's big point here in in Romans chapter 2. The Gentile doesn't have the law of God in the form of the Mosaic law. He won't be judged by that. But he does have the law written on his heart. That will be the standard by which he is judged. Does that make sense? So what about the Gentile, this so-called unfavored person? What is his status? Well, here we come into contact with this somewhat awkward verses 14 and 15. But, but this is really important. Let me try to pull four principles out of verses 14 and 15 for you. Number one is this. The Gentiles do not have the law in the same form that the Jews did, right? That's just a historical fact. They didn't possess the law in the same form that Israel did. Number two, although they don't have the law in the same form as the Jews did, they instinctively do the things of the law. They didn't have it as the Jews did, but they still instinctively do it. Now, that word instinctively is important. It means by design, by nature. They do the things of the law. This is what I was referring to in my long introduction when I talked about the fact that even agnostics do morally good things. Number three is this. By doing so, unbelievers show that God has indeed written his law on their hearts. Now, don't forget the case that Paul's been building here in both chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's not letting Gentiles who don't have the Mosaic law off the hook, not in the least. He said, look, first of all, God has revealed himself to the Gentile world in nature. He even says they know God. Gentiles who don't have the law know God, he says. They, he says in verse 32 of chapter 1, they, they know the ordinance of God. And now he puts on top of that, not only all that, but God has written the law on their hearts. Now, does that mean he's written the entire Torah on their hearts? No, but he's certainly given them the ability to discern right from wrong. Paul's telling us something fundamental about human nature here. Part of what it means to be human, part of what it means to be made in the image of God, is that God has stamped his law on our hearts. And therefore, all of humanity is without excuse. Everybody is without excuse. The fourth thing that we see here is that Paul says it's the presence of an active conscience within us that bears witness to the work that God has done in our hearts, even to Gentiles. Unbelievers do have a sense of their moral duties, and their consciences regulate their understanding of those things. Now, it's true that some people, what they call, sear their conscience, right? They, they, they reject God so often, they reject their conscience so often that they sear it, and after a while it no longer works according to its original design. But that doesn't negate the fact that it once did function properly and that God has dealt fairly with that unbeliever prior to him or her searing their conscience. So we have two categories of people here, Jew and Gentile. Both are on equal footing 
and God will judge them impartially. Gentiles who sin without the law will perish without the law. Jews who sin under the law will be judged by that same law. That sounds pretty foreboding, doesn't it? It sounds like what Paul's saying is that everybody seems destined to fall short of the standard by which they're going to be judged. And that's, of course, where he's headed in his argument. But already he's, he's sort of laying out this ominous tone like, look, Jew or Gentile, it's hopeless. With the law, under the law, you're going to be judged and you're going to perish. It doesn't sound good. But then, of course, we come to verse 13, right? This is good news. Justification is possible, according to verse 13. It's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Isn't that good news? That's good news, right? Because it looked pretty hopeless there for both Jew and Gentile, but now we find out there is a way to be justified. How? By doing the law. By obeying the law of God. Now, how many of you guys, that makes you feel a little uncomfortable? (laughs) Right? Because it sounds a little bit like justification by works, right? It should make you, the little red flag should go up and go, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. What is he exactly saying here? Now, if you isolate this passage, as Roman Catholics love to do, this is one of their favorite passages, you could come away thinking that God justifies based on good works. But what's the law of interpretation? We always look at the surrounding context. We always look at the flow of the letter itself and say, what is the argument that Paul is making? Folks, listen to me. There is no way to read the book of Romans and come away thinking you can be justified by works. Now, you can isolate passages, what we call proof text, and try to make that case, but you'll never come away from the entire letter and say, yep, we're justified by good works. In fact, quite the opposite. We're going to see very soon in chapter 3 this very explicit statement. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Doesn't get more explicit than that, right? So what is Paul saying? Well, this takes us back, if you look back in your text, back up to verse 6. He's already said something similar to this that God will render to each person according to his deeds. And what follows in verse 7, eternal life to those who persevere in doing good. So what's happening here? Well, I already talked about this four weeks ago. So uh, I'm going to encourage you, if you want a, a long exposition of what he's talking about here, go to the church website, click on the media tab, and look for the message called According to Our Deeds, where I, I, I lay this out in detail. But I'm not going to leave you today. Let me give you just a gist of what I mentioned four weeks ago before Israel. What we have to do is make this critical distinction. I'm going to put it on the screen so we don't miss it. This critical distinction between earning salvation on the basis of works, that is false, and being judged according to our works, that is true. Look at that. Meditate on it for a second. Earning salvation on the basis of works, no. Being judged according to our works, yes. That's said repeatedly in the book of Romans. So what does it mean? God will take your doing of the law, the fruit of your life, and he will accept that body of work as corroborating evidence that your faith in Christ is real, that it's authentic. This is mixing uh, you know, Romans 3 with James 2, right? The thing that the church has always struggled to do. Understand that both principles are true. Your good deeds will not earn you anything, but they will be accepted by God as evidence that you've trusted in Christ alone. By grace alone. I hope that makes sense. If not, go back and listen to it or check that other sermon. Remember this. Not only does God provide forgiveness and a right standing before God through Christ, 
but he also brings about in his children a transformed life. See, here's, what, here's what's happened, I think, in the evangelical church over the last 30 or 40 years. We've talked so much about salvation, and all we've talked about really is, is justification. We've said, forgiveness of sins, woo, this is fantastic, praise the Lord, and we've stopped, but we've missed the next step that is so important to God, and that is sanctification, right? You see the, you know, the difference between justification and sanctification. We've stopped. By saving us, God is after more than just that right standing before him, as important as that is. He's after our sanctification. He's, he's after a changed life and good deeds, doing the works of the law. In fact, that's so important to God that he sees to it himself that those things are produced in the life of a true believer by his spirit. He said, not only am I going to give you this right standing and justify you in my sight, but now I'm going to give you my spirit so that good works are produced in you. In fact, I'm going to lay out these good works, Ephesians 2.10, that you should walk in them. And that work, that body of work, that doing of the law, that obedience is going to be the evidence, the evidence at the judgment seat that we truly belong to Christ. Now, the opposite of that coin is true, right? You may say, well, I'm justified by Christ, but if there are no corroborating good works in your life, you should be concerned, should you not? Because judgment's going to be according to our works. So follow the logic here. This is important. If I've lost you or I've overwhelmed you, check in now. Here we go. Who will be acquitted on the day of judgment? Those who are justified in God's sight. Who will be justified in God's sight? Those who are doers of the law. Who are the doers of the law? Those who have trusted in Christ alone, by faith alone, and are therefore enabled by God's Spirit to produce genuine saving fruit. Romans is an intensely logical book, is it not? You want me to say it again? Real fast. Who will be acquitted? Those who are justified in God's sight. The only people that can stand before the Lord, right? To be justified in His sight. Who will be justified in His sight? The doers of the law. Who are the doers of the law? Those who have trusted in Christ by faith alone and who have the Spirit within them, which is now producing fruit, corroborating evidence for the day of judgment. That's Paul's argument here in Romans 1 and 2. So I finished my message this part, up to this part, on Friday and Saturday morning. And then I, I went for a run on Saturday and I, I said, Lord, I, this is intensely logical and, and, and hard. How do, I, how do I bring application? How do I, how do I bring some, something that these folks can, can take home with them, New Testament believers? And I, and I, I went for my run, which is when I, I always think best when I'm, when I'm running in, in the shower. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, and all these thoughts started flooding my mind, and they were incredibly heavy thoughts. So I'm going to share them with you, but just know that these are some incredibly heavy thoughts. What the Lord impressed on my heart is how ominous this day of judgment is going to be. How ominous the day of judgment ought to be in our hearts. I don't think we take it seriously. As evangelicals in America, I don't think we take it seriously. Not as seriously as we should. I think this is typical of modern-day Americans. We're so comfortable, and we experience so little discomfort and so little persecution and so little suffering that these things in the Bible seem unreal to us. 
Oh, yeah, I've read about that, but that's not really going to happen, is it? I mean, we would never say that out loud, but we live as if we believe these things aren't really going to happen, as if they're unreal. But Scripture promises us that the day of judgment is a fixed reality. It is as certain as any prophecy in Scripture that's already come true. It will happen. And on that day of judgment, billions of people will be condemned with a B. Think about that. Just think about that for a second. Billions of people condemned for eternity. And among those billions, most likely are some of our friends and maybe family members and coworkers and people we wave to in the morning and people that we pass by every day in the busyness of life. And so what the Lord put in my heart is, Jeff, have you been as bold and courageous as you should have been? as you should be in sharing your faith. In light of what's coming, are you bold and courageous? And I'd ask the same thing of you. Life is not to be trivialized. Every moment that we're given, every breath that we're given by God has to count. Honestly, we don't have time to be spiritually lazy. We don't have time to be apathetic in our walk with Christ. If we really believe what Scripture says, we don't have the luxury of just cruising through life, making sure that we remain comfortable while ignoring kingdom priorities. We really don't. We need to have urgency in our walk with Christ. We need to understand the days that we live in. When I got back from Israel a couple weeks ago, and I I know I mentioned this to some of you guys, I I saw in the people incredible passion for what they believe. I mean, so much so that it was almost scary, right? You guys were there, the religious tension everywhere. There are no atheists in Jerusalem. It's nuts. But man, they're, they're zealous and passionate for what they believe. Now, I know scripture says that, Paul says that the Jews, they have zeal without knowledge, right? But here we have knowledge without zeal. We have the truth, but we're lacking in the passion and the zeal. We lack urgency. We're comfortable. We don't have persecution. We don't have suffering. But the clock is ticking. And the day of judgment is coming. We don't have time for disobedience, folks. We don't have time for grumbling and squabbling and fighting over silly things. We don't have time to be blowing off prayer and study and not serving others. We don't have time to to focus on worldly things so that kingdom priorities are ignored. If we believe the day of judgment is what Scripture says it is, because God has fixed a day when he would judge the secrets of men, and there will be no excuses on that day. If you're sitting here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ yet, which means you're trusting in yourself, I implore you to repent of your self-righteousness and believe the gospel. Urgency is what the Lord put on my heart. If you're trusting in yourself today, believe the good news of the gospel, lay aside yourself, and trust in Christ alone. I'm putting you on notice. I'm putting you on notice. If you're trusting in your your obedience to God's law in order to be saved, you have to obey all of it. Every bit of it. To the letter of the law. There is no grading curve. There is no sliding scale. You are responsible for every bit of it. Don't do it. Don't trust in it. You're not that good. In fact, you may think, well, I'm better than most. That will not fly on the day of judgment. 
Oh, yeah, but you don't understand. People are evil, and I've got it all together. You will perish for all eternity apart from the saving work of Christ. It's that simple. We've been given much, haven't we, here at Oak Hill? Week in and week out, Sunday after Sunday, we sing praises to God about his grace and his mercy and his patience and his kindness. We talk about the cross, the shed blood. We talk about how our sins have been washed away. We have been given much, and we will be judged by the gospel that we've heard. We'll be held accountable for the great measure of truth that we've received. Again, it's not the hearers of the gospel who will be justified. It will be those who live out the gospel by faith. It will be the doers, the obeyers who prove that their faith is real. If you claim the name of Christ this morning, my question is, have you obeyed the gospel that you hear about every single week here in church? Have you obeyed the gospel? And then last night as I was working on this, you know a story came to mind? Noah and the ark. You know, the story of Noah and the ark is an amazing story, and not just because it makes for a great kid's coloring book right? It is so instructive for us. Remember how Noah was called a righteous man in his day, right? He walked with God, it says, and for 120 years, he talked with God as God gave him this blueprint for this giant ark in the middle of dry land, right? It's an amazing story. But understand this, Noah was not a righteous man who then went out and sought the face of God on his own. God came to Noah and made him righteous. We know that from the whole of Scripture, But when the flood came, God's wrath was poured out upon the earth and all of its inhabitants and death and destruction came to an extent that we can't even fathom. Have you ever tried to stop and imagine a global flood and people being swept away? But Noah was safe. Noah was protected in the ark. God saw to it that Noah would be saved. Well, why is that story important for us? Friends, It's given to remind us that in the last days, another great day of wrath is coming. More great and more terrible than the global flood. The day of judgment. It will sweep everything away. The unrighteous mass of humanity will not escape it. And when it arrives, it will be too late to get into the ark. And only those who have walked with God will be saved. That's why the story is given to us. Another great day of wrath is coming. Do we take it seriously? Do we live with the type of urgency knowing that it's coming? I've heard people say, you know, if I lived in the days of Noah, I'd have been running around telling everybody, the rain's coming, you got to get in the ark. Guess what? You have a chance to do that now. Right? Because another day is coming. So are you running around telling everybody that the rain is coming again? Take this passage and think about Your children. These little souls made in the image of God with the law of God written on their hearts. Now, if they're small, someday they will grow up and they will know enough about God to be judged. We don't want to think about this, do we? Our kids at the judgment seat? Yeah, at the judgment seat. How does that impact your urgency as a Christian parent? To get God's word into their heart. To raise them in the admonition of the Lord. To to be an example for them. In your words. In your deeds before them. Because someday they too will face the judgment seat of God. 
Think about applying this to the people around you, the people in your life. Remember, all the non-believers around you have the law of God written on their hearts. They may be trying to suppress it, but it's there in the deep recesses of their heart. And, and you know what I grab from that? Be bold and courageous in your witnessing. Tap into that connection. At one point, God was very clear with them in their conscience, right and wrong. They may be trying to sear it, suppress it, make excuses for it, but be bold and courageous. Be hopeful when you share your faith. They know God. Paul tells us that. They know the ordinances of God. They somehow know that they're accountable for their choices. They have a conscience. Tap into those things. Share the gospel. Trust in his sovereignty. But be urgent. Be bold and courageous to get out there and share your faith. Day of judgment is coming, folks. It could be soon. The rain might start falling from the sky. Have you told the people to get in the ark? One final word, because I don't want to leave you in despair this morning. As serious as this passage is, Paul's purpose in writing it wasn't that the Roman church would fall into despair, that they'd be motivated, yes, despair, no. Ultimately, this passage helps us better understand the glorious truth about the gospel, and it should move us to rejoice that we have a place in the ark. There's a reservation in the ark for you. We should rejoice in that. God shows us how hopeless our condition is apart from Christ so that we might see how full of hope and how full of glory our condition is in Christ and how foolish it is to trust in anything but him. That's what Paul wants to leave you with this morning. Bow your heads, would you?